I want to say it now before I forget again to say it again. Like, I think we really should show our appreciation to Joyful Noise and for the musicians and for the service the way it started today, this inspiring music that touches the heart where we find Christ living and I think expresses a lot of the emotions that we have as believers in Jesus. They sing the story very well, and if we could, and the bells too, what a, what a joy that was. The bells are outstanding, and it's not easy to learn to play them, I'm sure. But they do a great job. Well, I have a story to tell you, and it's true. Not that I wouldn't tell you the truth, but this story I can guarantee is true because I'm in it. And I was there when this event happened. It happened about, uh, well, I won't count the years, I'll just say what the years were. It was in 1968 or 69. I was just discharged from the Marine Corps. I enrolled in Indiana University Graduate School of Business to pursue a Master of Business Administration degree and get my career back on track. It was about halfway through the academic year, which would be about December or January, and I was in my finance class. You know, you like finance if you really love accounting. So half the class fit that, fit that criteria, and uh, half the class probably not so sure. But it was a finance class, and our professor was a middle-aged man, and there was nothing particularly unusual about him. He did not have any kind of a reputation for being tough or lenient or anything else among the students. And he taught using a lot of examples, telling stories, talking about his experiences, and other illustrations that he uh, came upon. And he'd been doing this for years. So one day during a lecture, a student challenged the professor. He said, Sir, if everything you are telling us is true, then, then why aren't you a millionaire? Now remember, this was in 1968-69, a real expensive home would cost $30,000. So a million dollars in today's money was, you know, 30 million or more. Well, when he heard that, the professor stopped and he, <clears throat> of course, looked at the student, looked at his registration list, then he looked at the whole class, and then he simply leaned forward and said, I am a millionaire. And that's all they had to say because that simple response energized almost the entire class. We worked harder, we studied harder, our motivation increased by a thousand percent. We wanted to follow in the footsteps of this professor because we wanted to become millionaires like he did, and we would follow all of his teachings, we would do all of his, carry out all of his principles just to be rewarded with success. It was that energizing to us. Now Jesus did not appear to be a millionaire. He left the glory and the splendor and the riches of heaven and became one of us. Born of a virgin, he lived an itinerant life. He showed no signs of weakness or wealth that he left behind. And the people in his hometown of Nazareth, well, they didn't see any unusual evidence about power and wealth in Jesus' life as he grew up. They didn't take him seriously, in fact. In fact, you read in Luke that one time when Jesus was reading the book of Isaiah in the synagogue. The people ended up running him out of town, taking him up to a, to a hill to throw him off a cliff when, just because he stated the truth that he fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy about who the Messiah, who the Messiah is. Now today's gospel, Jesus has left his hometown and he's moving along the coast of the Sea of Galilee, going through various villages and fishing operations. And we've heard in previous readings of the 
the Gospel of Mark, how the lawyers and the Pharisees have followed him along and have peppered him with questions, and they have been craftily putting their words together to lead Jesus into a trap, but he never falls into a trap. But one of these people who's always following him is different, much different. He's, he's excited that Jesus is coming. He's looking forward to it. It's in his day planner. He's like my predecessors, my excuse me, my professor's students. He is successful, and he's going to go see Jesus to receive his blessing and condemna uh, condemnation. No, commend, to be commended for his financial and social su success. Because in that culture, if you were at a high social, social and economic level, it was believed you had an end with God. God was really blessing you and carved you out for important things. And if you didn't have wealth, or maybe even suffering as a leper or a tax collector, you were actually earning God's disfavor and disapproval. Wealth was proof of God's favor. Poverty was proof of God's disfavor. Well, the man runs up to Jesus to ask a question, and he's very polite. He says, good teacher, can I ask you a question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And that word inherit is, is really a key here. Now, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, all three describe this event. And when you put all three descriptions together, we get an interesting picture of this man. He's young to begin with, so he's wealthy at a very young age. He is rich, very rich. He's a ruler of some sort, probably some sort of a lawyer with his hometown synagogue, and he's deeply religious. He's confessed to that. Very familiar with the Torah, prophets, and the Psalms. And he is seeking perfection. Jesus points that out and telling him what he must do what he must do to be perfect. And this young man has been working at this hard from his youth, and eternal life would now mean that he is perfect. There's nothing left for him to do. He understands that eternal life is a gift, and he wants to receive this gift as an inheritance, meaning someone has to die and give eternal life to him through a legal document, a will, for instance. He is respected, and he is influential. He has everything going for him, and he wants to make sure that he doesn't miss anything or leave anything out. But in truth, he has. He's missed the point. He's missed the point that in all of his studies, in all of the traditions he's carried out, in all the rituals he's followed, he's missed the point that they all point to Jesus and what Jesus will do for him. It isn't about what he, the young man, has done. It's all about what Jesus will do for this young man and everyone else in the world. He misses the point when he hears Jesus say, Go sell everything you can and give it to the poor. He's crushed by these words. He's stunned by these words. The gospel writers record that he had great wealth and was very distraught at the thought of selling off everything and giving it away for something that he can't see or have until he dies. Not only that, the young man doesn't even indicate that he heard Jesus speak the words, Come, follow me. He wanted simply to add eternal life to his collection of achievements. So what do you think was more upsetting to him? Selling everything and giving it to the poor, or following Jesus, or both? He was being asked to give up his wealth, his influence, the respect of his hometown. He had run up to Jesus all excited and expecting to be recognized for all he had done. And now he's leaving Jesus, weeping, grieving, filled with sorrow. His word and his world that he hoped to create fell apart. The irony is, he did not know that following Jesus would lead him to eternal life. 
He was so close to what he wanted, and he didn't see it. There was too much in the way. Kneeling at Jesus' feet, this young man did not see that Jesus was paying the price for eternal life for him and all others in the world. The perfection the young man attempted to attain would be attained by Jesus. The sin penalty that the young man faced would be paid by Jesus, who would suffer and die on a cross. The man wanted to inherit eternal life. Well, Jesus would be the one who dies, and God the Father would raise him up from the dead. Then God the Father would replace the young man's faith in himself with faith in Jesus, making the young man an inheritor of eternal life and a co-heir with Christ. He didn't see that following Jesus on this kind of a journey would be joyful, fulfilling, and not a sorrowful one as he was experiencing now. He didn't see what Jesus saw in him because Jesus was looking into the heart and the life of this young man and he sees that there's no room in it for Jesus. Well, what do we do when we run out of room in our homes, our garages, our basements, and our storage units, and no, who knows where else? We have a yard sale. We have a garage sale. They're all around the town on the weekends. You're always bumping into them. And there are estate sales. And in them we, make, we get, of stuff, we get room of, rid of stuff we've had for a long time to make room for more stuff we wanted and think is better. Go sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me. The man looks at what he has, what he has to give up. He compares it to what Jesus has said he will have sometime in the future. And he says, no. He could not let go of what he has and take hold of Jesus and eternal life. He had to let go of the money, the properties, influence, and respect, and he just couldn't do it. If there is something in our lives that keeps Jesus out of our lives, we need to get rid of it. We need to remove the obstacle. In the beginning of our worship service, we pause to give just a few seconds of thought to our sin. It probably seems like a long time, but five seconds is not a long time. And that, that silence is not a liturgical pause. It is a moment of self-reckoning when we see ourselves for who we truly are, just like we confess, miserable sinners, poor miserable sinners, sinful by nature and by deed. These are the words we spoke when this service began. You know, it's been said that we can recall at any particular time only about 5% of our sins or failures when we try to list them. That's because our sinful nature goes right to work, creating a positive spin on what we can and cannot recall. So we need to confess it. We need forgiveness for all of it. Jesus has always been upfront about the cost of his discipleship. Each of us have our stuff that can clutter our lives to distraction. We can lose our perspective on life and eternal life. We can visualize Jesus in his suffering, paying the price of our sin, and we can visualize him dying on the cross. But we have to remember receiving eternal life is not a stand-alone transaction. It's not a one-time premium payment. It's not a one-time commitment to a set of beliefs and values. It is a daily renewal of our commitment to follow Jesus. And it is best to travel light. It is best to renew our life with Jesus in baptism, internalize the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes, to be humble, merciful, grieving the absence of godliness and righteousness in this life, being merciful and showing peace and making peace. I began this message describing my finance class experience. I'm not talking about me necessarily, but I don't think the motivation lasted very long. 
you know, low grades on a couple of quizzes and exams and complicated material to master, demands from other classes, distracted some students. And it's true that as believers, we encounter distractions as well that can erode our commitment to making room for Jesus. And there is one distraction that I've seen and you've seen over the years too. It doesn't need a name because we always recognize its effects. It's a, it's a distraction that you no longer see people as often in worship as you once did. Now, in a former parish I served years ago, I decided I'm going to find out why this is going on, why some of these folks haven't been here for one or two years. They're still on the membership rolls, but I've never seen them or heard from them, but they're there. So I called them up. I wasn't sure what kind of welcome I would get over the phone, but actually worked, worked out quite well. Had nice conversations. And their responses to my question about how are things going, we've missed you here, we'd like to see you back, anything we can do for you, they varied from, well, there's no problem, and we're just busy, and we'll get back, we'll see you soon, but we never did. Making room for Jesus is something we just can't ignore. It's a lifestyle that nourishes our lives. And it's a lifestyle that's easily learned when we are young, like these children a little bit ago. And it's also easily learned by older than young children, such as us. For instance, on Wednesday mornings, the school children have a chapel service here. They basically fill all the seats we have. And I've been coming to all of the, all of the chapel services, and I wouldn't miss it for the world. It's a great way to start the day. And fortunately, I can do it that way. It's a half hour of joyful song, scripture, prayer, and dedication led by joyful people who have Jesus in their life. In this chapel service, we make room for Jesus. The children, the teachers, the staff, the guest presenters, they're all inspiring. Their enthusiasm and energy fills the space of this building with the joy of worshiping and serving Jesus. We could say they're just warming it up for us. On two separate occasions, two different couples, young couples, talked about how they are making room for Jesus with their lives. You know them. They're connected with this congregation in various ways. It's Ben and Rebecca Helge, missionaries to the Czech Republic, and Phil and Rachel Joseph, who may you may not know as well, who are missionaries to Uruguay, a small country between Brazil and Argentina near the southern tip of South America. As Pastor Phil said, if you want to find us, you go south to, you go south, to south America, and then you just keep going south. They described their mission that is to enable those people in these countries, the Czech Republic and Uruguay, to learn about Jesus and make room for him in their lives because he's sorely missing there. And God Cares About You mission is another example of making room for Jesus. To me, it's an inspiring example of creating a presence of love, peace, safety, and daily bread in a suffering part of our community. I started helping there several months ago sorting clothes. I've never done that before in my life. And now I'm pretty good at it. Give me your list. I'll try to fill it for you. And then I started helping to get more in a small way when I can when the food truck arrives on the fourth Wednesday of each month. And last Saturday, yesterday, and the Saturday before that, Carolyn, my wife, we were here and we saw how the mission helps children with their schoolwork, provides a meal, and sends them home with food. God cares about you is simply amazing, and it should be, because we serve an amazing God who enables us to do amazing things. But there's one more way we can make room for Jesus in our lives, in our communities, and it's on an individual basis, long-term, long-term project. I listen to the Lutheran Hour on their po uh, podcast on Sundays, which is usually 9 o'clock this Sunday morning. Did you know the program is in its 90th year of consecutive broadcasting? 90 years. 
without a break almost. And recently they have prepared a strategy that falls in place under that 90-year-old banner, bringing Christ to the nations. They prepared a strategy and a program for people in congregations to bring peace and hope into our neighborhoods as individuals. And as you might think, it is called the hope-filled neighborhood. Finally, our amazing God will do amazing things through us in the room we make for him in our lives for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.